are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. August 28th marks the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And a couple of days ago, I was asked to give a talk at the Mason Scharfenstein Museum here at Piedmont University about the exhibit that was up at the time of Bud Lee, who was a photographer and artist. He covered the 1967 Newark uprisings. Um, He covered Detroit, I believe, in 68, and he covered Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral in 68 as well. And as I prepared the speech, I started thinking about the the March on Washington, this important event being 60 years ago today, um, and kind of this lineage, specifically with 1963, and then connecting it, of course, with the images that Lee took in Newark in 1967. So today, I just want to share with you on this podcast the comments that I made about um, the exhibit and connecting it with the larger civil rights movement, specifically back to 1963. So here we go. We've all seen images of Walter Gadsden, a Parker High School student in Birmingham, Alabama, getting attacked by dogs as Birmingham police officers hold their leashes. We've all seen images of students in Birmingham bracing themselves against walls as Birmingham fire, firefighters and emergency personnel blast them with high-pressure fire hoses. Those images are from the Birmingham campaign, which took place 60 years ago in April and May of 1963. The campaign originated in 1962 when students at area colleges proposed staggered boycotts of businesses, similar to the Montgomery bus boycotts and events elsewhere. On April 3rd, 1963, individuals participated in nonviolent protests such as sit-ins at segregated public buildings, restaurants, churches, and more. Seven days later, Bull Connor, Birmingham's public safety commissioner, issued an injunction which barred protest and raised bail bonds from $200 to $1,500. The jails began to fill up, and on April 12th, Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested. During his time in the jail, King penned his famous letter from Birmingham City Jail on scraps of paper that people passed to him. In his open letter, King responded to eight white liberal clergymen in Alabama who called on King to rely on the legal system in gradual progress instead of nonviolent protest because the latter, they argued, would lead to civil unrest. In his letter, King wrote that Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. While 60% of the population was white and 40% was black, the police force did not have any black officers, and King stated, Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of this country, and the legal system treated black citizens unjustly. King responds to the clergyman who wanted him to work within the legal system, and King tells them that the community waited for the election process to play out and see what the new administration would do. But when Bull Connor got reelected and other things happened, they decided to act. Following King's arrest and release, and the arrest of countless other individuals, the campaign shifted tactics, calling upon children, from elementary to high school, to march from 16th Street Baptist Church to City Hall to speak with the mayor about segregation and systemic issues in Birmingham. 
From May 2nd to the 10th, 1963, students took part in the Children's Crusade, many getting arrested and released. Children participated to make their voices heard, but also because their arrest would not impact the economic viability of their parents or guardians in the same way as older individuals getting arrested. King, Malcolm X, Robert F. Kennedy, and other leaders didn't agree with James Bevel's initiative. But the Children's Crusade had an enormous impact on the movement. The images of Gadsden and other students getting bitten by police dogs or pummeled with water from high-pressure hoses spread across the globe. The Birmingham campaign reignited the civil rights movement, and four months later, King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, further expanding the movement. August 28th marks the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. About a week before the 1963 march, the Shreveport Times, which is my local newspaper from where I grew up, the Shreveport Times ran an editorial entitled, Our Laws Must Be Upheld. And the editorial begins this way. The one bright spot on the horizon of the Negro rights revolution sweeping the country is the steadily increasing public revulsion against the avalanche of propaganda that it is all right for Negroes and their white supporters to break laws and bloody street demonstrations because the so-called rights they seek are something they are supposed to have. The commentator continued by stating, That is simply jungle law. If you don't like something, destroy it. The author calls the civil rights movement propaganda and says that it has been spread from many directions, finding its way into newspapers and has been prominent at times on TV. Continuing, the writer argues that the marchers are fanatics, as if propelled by God to upend the unequal laws on the books. The protesters say, as the commentator imagines, It's all right for me to break the law if I say that the so-called Negro rights are the objective, but it's not right for you to uphold laws which for decades have protected the established rights of all people of all colors if I object. The writer presents the marchers and protesters as simply pushing back against laws they don't agree with. That's not the case, though, as we know. The laws, which would include redlining, Jim Crow, vagrancy laws, and more and more, did not protect all people of all colors. If they did, then would the civil rights movement have even been necessary? King responded to these arguments in his letter from a Birmingham city jail, when he writes, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and there are just and there are unjust laws. On the latter, King expounded by stating, Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. Following the march on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Shreveport's Public Safety Commissioner George D'Artois penned an article in the Shreveport Times describing the event. D'Artois, alongside Shreveport Police Chief Harvey D. Teasley, attended the march on Washington as observers. D'Artois called the march on Washington a flop and disparaged those who attended, labeling them as shabbily dressed and from within a 300-mile radius. He chose his rhetoric to denigrate the march and its participants, constantly dealing in stereotypes that would cause the readers of the article to side with white supremacy, while dismissing the marchers' pleas and requests to provide them with their rights as citizens of the United States. Not even a month after his trip to Washington, D'Artois enacted racial violence on the black community in Shreveport, as they met to honor and memorialize the four young girls killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. 
On September 15, 1963, a little over two weeks after the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, four members of the Ku Klux Klan placed dynamite under the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, murdering Addie Mae Collins, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, all 14, and Denise McNair, 11. In his eulogy to the four girls, King stated that they have something to say to us in their death. They speak to the minister who remains silent, to every politician who has fed his constituents the stale bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism, to those in national government who compromise with segregationists, to African Americans who stand on the sidelines and the young girls ultimately tell us that we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system, the way of life, and the philosophy which produced the murderers. Northeast George's Lillian E. Smith, who King, whom King referred to in his letter from a Birmingham city jail as one of the white Southerners who grasped the meaning of this social revolution and committed herself to it, examined the philosophy which produced the murderers. Smith and King had been friends since she reached out to him in 1956 and supported the Montgomery bus boycotts and their relationship is important. However, I do not have time today to detail it. If you'd like more about that, go and check out our episode with Marie Cochran or my article, MLK and Lillian Smith, over at Black Perspectives. And the, I'll put that link in the comment below in the, on the show description. Needless to say, both King and Smith agreed on nonviolent protest and immediate action to end segregation and Jim Crow. In 1964, Smith published her final book, a collection of dramatic monologues entitled Our Faces, Our Words. It contained nine monologues from different individuals involved in the civil rights movement, and these are fictionalized individuals. In one monologue, a 22-year-old white woman tells her father about her involvement in the movement as she participated in sit-ins, got arrested, and more. On the murder of Collins, Robertson, Wesley, and McNair, the woman says to her father, Last summer, when the trouble happened in Birmingham, in our hometown, you didn't do anything. Even after the bombings, even after those four little girls were killed, you didn't do anything. Not a damn thing. You're respected, you're prominent, you're popular, you're a member of the best clubs. You're on the board of stewards of our church, and you didn't do a thing to help, to say, this is wrong. Oh, I know, you said it at home. That's pretty bad. But you didn't say it where anyone else could hear. The woman, like King's letter to the clergyman, calls out her father's inaction in speaking up against the violence and bombings. Her mother told her that she probably participated in the sit-ins and got arrested in Mississippi to humiliate her father. But the woman says she did it to fight for equal rights for all. And she ends her monologue by telling her father, But the search for excellence can be dangerous. It takes us to strange places. Doesn't it, Dad? On September 22, 1963, five days after the murder of Collins, Robertson, Wesley, and McNair, the local chapter of the NAACP in Treeport met at Little Union Baptist Church for memorial service. During the service, D'Artois ordered his riot squad to push back against peaceful demonstrators. As well, he rode his horse into the sanctuary, down the aisle, not just interrupting the service but desecrating the space the individuals there. He proceeded to drag Reverend Harry Blake, a civil rights leader and pastor, out of the church. And D'Artois, along with other officers, beat him. Blake needed seven stitches. The next day, students protested D'Artois' actions and Blake's beating, 
and the Artois arrested 18 students. Shreveport, almost 60 years later, issued an apology for the attacks. The resolution in part reads, When the children refused to turn back, police brutality attacked them with batons and tear gas. Students frantically ran from officers and returned to the campus of Booker T. Washington. Police attempted to enter the school and proceeded to attack Principal R.H. Brown and several teachers as they attempted to protect the students. One of the students, Reverend H. Calvin Austin, spent 45 days in jail. He was also expelled and banned from attending public school in Caddo Parish. He finished high school in New Orleans. You may be sitting here listening to this and ask yourself, what does all this have to do with this exhibition of Budley's work? What happened in Birmingham in 1963 and what happened elsewhere around the South during that period impacted Newark in 1967. As James Baldwin put it in 1963, when a race riot occurs, it will not spread merely to Birmingham. The trouble will spread to every metropolitan city in the nation, which has a significant Negro population. Selma to Montgomery March, which of course is in the South in 1965. Watts in 1965. Dayton and Chicago in 1966, Detroit, Newark, and about 150 cities in 1967. Newark simmered long before it reached a boil in July 1967. The industrialization, white flight, and more left Newark decimated. In 1967, Newark was a majority black city, but the government did not represent that. Instead, the government was controlled by white politicians, and black policemen uh, constituted 11% or 145 of the 1,322 police officer force. Police brutality had long been an issue in Newark, and on July 12, 1967, two white officers beat and arrested John William Smith, a black cab driver. They took him to the 4th Precinct and charged him with assaulting the officers and insulting them. Rumors spread that the officers murdered Smith, and the uprising began. Taking place over five days, the uprising resulted in 26 deaths, 727 injuries, 1,465 arrests, and $10 million in damage. That would be about $88 million today. And this is just one out of 150 incidents. There are many of these images that stand out from his documentation of the Newark uprising. However, for me, four come to mind. The first is an image of 24-year-old Billy Furr and another man carrying cases of beer out of Mac Liquors. As the police pulled up, Furr ran down the street and an officer shot at him, killing him. Lee captured the aftermath of the shooting, showing an officer standing over Furr's body. When the officer shot at Furr, they also struck 12-year-old Joey Bass Jr. who was playing in the street. Lee's photograph of Bass lying on the pavement was the image that appeared on the cover of Life magazine. Lee photographed Bass's family later in their apartment, Um, and this image shows not just the sorrow of his family, but also the economic conditions that helped ignite the fuse. Lee's documentation in Newark is painful and important. The most powerful image, though, for me, is one that Lee took of Joyce Furr, Billy Furr's mother. She stands at the window in his bedroom, looking out as if she's waiting for her son to return home. There's a television, desk, and bed in the room. A small indentation is in the bed, an indentation indicating the recent presence of Billy or someone else in the room, the room he will not return to. And as his mother gazes towards the street, she awaits the son that she will never embrace again. 1963, 
from the Birmingham campaign in April and May all the way up to John F. Kennedy's assassination in November 1963 led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, the same year as the Selma to Montgomery marches and the Watts Uprising. Lillian Smith passed away in September 1966. Newark occurred in 1967. Martin Luther King was assassinated in April 1968 and Robert F. Kennedy in June 1968, all within a five-year span. In his posthumous essay, A Testament of Hope, King looks back and echoes in many ways the woman in Smith's Our Faces, Our Words. This is what King writes. Many whites hasten to congratulate themselves on what little progress we Negroes have made. I'm sure that most whites felt that with the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, all race problems were automatically solved. Because most white people are so far removed from the life of the average Negro, there has been little to challenge this assumption. Yet Negroes continue to live with racism every day. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to learn more about the Lillian E. Smith Center or how you can donate to our ongoing programs and work, go to piedmont.edu backslash Lillian dash E dash Smith dash Center. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag DopeWithLime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.